one is on the on the fritz. Well, it's good to, again to see everyone here this morning. Some familiar faces, some new faces. As we begin today as a church, a new season in the life of our church, at least from the pulpit ministry, and that is we begin today Second Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians. So turn there in your Bibles with me. And so today is uh, uh, going to be an introduction, and then we will also get into the text this morning of this short letter of the Apostle Paul. It's only 47 verses. It's about the length of Romans chapter 8. So we're going to have a short introduction this morning to a short letter. The long introduction was January the 10th when I introduced 1 Thessalonians to you. And if you weren't here and you want to go listen to that, it's on our website. You can watch the live stream or you can listen to the audio of a lengthy introduction to First and Second Thessalonians. But today, a short introduction. It's six months later. Okay, that's it. <laughs> There's your... Now, I'm going to give you a little bit more than that, but that's uh, that's essentially where we are. Paul wrote First Thessalonians around 50, 51 A.D. Well, it's still around 50, 51 A.D. He writes from Corinth, and still alongside him are the same two... Uh, co-workers, Timothy and Silas, also known as Silvanus. So it is six months later from the other letter, but there is a clear shift in tone. This is a very different letter than 1 Thessalonians. Persecution has ramped up among the believers, and the seeds of false teaching that were probably sown not long after they were converted, those seeds are beginning to bear some bad fruit in their midst. One person said Second Thessalonians is shorter and sharper. Shorter and sharper. I'll also tell you that there's a whole lot less autobiography in this letter. Paul speaks very rarely of himself now in Second Thessalonians. It's much more pointed and businesslike in its tone. The Thessalonian believers had come to Christ out of pagan background, out of Roman culture, They had been marvelously converted to the Lord Jesus, and affliction and persecution began almost immediately. It would have come in the form of verbal attacks, it would have come in the form of ostracizing them, minimalizing them as these new believers. They had traded in all of their Roman gods and goddesses for the one God and His Son, the Lord Jesus. As this persecution came upon them, these early believers began to mistake man's wrath for God's wrath. Someone had come along and had taught them, deceived them, that they were already, bless their hearts, you know, they were already in the day of the Lord. Paul had talked about the day of the Lord back in the first letter. He had talked about the rapture of the church in the first letter and the second coming of Christ. But somehow or another, these young baby Christians have become so confused that they're thinking that this persecution is God's wrath. And the day of the Lord had begun. We also mentioned that during 1 Thessalonians that laziness was a problem in the culture and therefore the church. The, the typical Roman male lived to sit around and philosophize and talk and, and they, had, they had, basically had servants to do everything. Uh, The typical Roman life would have been never lift a finger, hire someone else to do that. And so there was a laziness throughout the culture, but it's actually gotten worse in the church. 
they've now taken their cultural sin of laziness and they've added to it a theological justification. They've said, well, if Jesus is coming back at any moment, Paul, if the return of Christ is imminent, Paul, then why go to work on Monday morning? Okay, if the Lord is coming back, I'm just going to kick back. I'm just going to wait. But I still got to eat, so I'm going to mooch off of you while I do so. That's what's going on in this church with these baby believers. The theme then of 2 Thessalonians is living in the light of the return of Christ. Living in the light of the return of Christ. Christ's return to earth is mentioned 318 times in the New Testament. No other doctrine is mentioned more than the return of Christ in the New Testament. That is an astounding number. And it is a major focus of chapter 1 and chapter 2 of this letter. I will call 1 Thessalonians eschatology, which is the big fancy word for end times, study of the end times. 1 Thessalonians was eschatology 101. A beginner's eschatology. Second Thessalonians is eschatology 301. And you say, what happened to 201? And <laughs> well, we skipped it. We just jumped right over it. We just went from, we just went from, you know, algebra one to, to calculus in terms of eschatology. In fact, one commentator said of chapter two that it is, quote, an interpretive jungle. An interpretive jungle. Here is a simple outline then that we will follow for this short letter of 2 Thessalonians. Chapter 1 is encouragement for the persecuted. Encouragement for the persecuted. Chapter 2 is instruction for the confused. And chapter 3 is admonishment for the undisciplined. Encouragement for the persecuted. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed 
To this end also we pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in Him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 2 is instruction for the confused. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And now you know what restrains him, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan. With all power and signs and false wonders... And with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this He called you through our gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. Chapter 3, admonishment for the undisciplined. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did also with you. And that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful, and He will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord concerning you that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. Now, we command you. Brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. 
because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now, may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. And this is a distinguishing mark in every letter that I write. This is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. The letter takes about seven minutes to read. I would encourage you to try to do so several times over the next few weeks. Firmly implant the principles and messages of this powerful epistle. Today is part one then from verses one to four of chapter one. Encouragement for the persecuted Christian. I would say to you this morning that persecution and tribulation are both here, here in America here and coming. They are both present and growing if the Lord tarries. There is no excuse for any of us to not be spiritually prepared for what is coming. Because the warning signs are everywhere. And the Bible is full of warning signs as well. Hostility and if you want to call it this, persecution in America, I think right now is like a small fire in a forest. And given the right conditions upon that fire, can be fanned into a forest fire. Hostility right now in America is like a small thunderstorm. But it appears on the horizon and it seems to be gathering moisture and energy and momentum before it is unleashed in a great fury. We are to be warned by the Word of God and by having our eyes open... That hostility is naturally a growing thing in a fallen world. We need to be warned this morning that our religious freedoms and our freedom of gathering and our freedom of the press are not promised to us in the Bible. They're promised to us in the Constitution of the United States of America. A man-made document that can be ignored, that can be set aside, that can be trampled upon by even the governing authorities who pretend to be under it. Be reminded that we will not always have religious freedom if the Lord tarries. This is not a promise from God of something that will last forever. 
And as you know, if you pay attention, it is already eroding from under our feet. This week, Edmund Kozak wrote in a website post called LifeZet.com. It was this past Wednesday. These words. I don't know if Edwin, Edmund Kozak is overstating things. He's sounding an alarm here for sure of a very recent event. He says, quote, the Obama administration's Commission on Civil Rights, this was this past Wednesday, has released a terrifying report that lays the groundwork for legal persecution of Christians in America. The report entitled, quote, Peaceful Coexistence, Reconciling Non-Discrimination Principles with Civil Liberties. This report asserts that religious liberty and the free exercise of religion are in truth merely an excuse for bigots and racists to get away with discrimination. Martin Castro is the chairman of this commission. He said this in a statement that was included with the report. The phrases religious liberty and religious freedom remain code words for discrimination, intolerance, racism, sexism, homophobia, Islamophobia, Christian supremacy, or any form of intolerance. He continues, Today, as in the past, religion is being used as both a weapon and a shield by those seeking to deny others equality. This generation of Americans must stand up and speak out to ensure that religion, substitute morality, never again be twisted to deny others the full promise of America, end quote. There was a dissenter with the report on the commission. It was actually the guy who had the idea for the study in the report because he's recognizing in our culture there are these two competing forces going on right now, anti-discrimination and civil liberties, right? And he sees these as two polarizing forces. And so there was a person who said, we need to look into this and, and, and do this commission and do this report. And then he dissents with the outcome. Here's what he said. Now he's, he's, he's on the inside, okay? He's on this commission. He said this, quote, This report will be used to inform government at every level as to how to approach any kind of issues related to religious liberty and non-discrimination. He goes on, he says, If there is a tension between the two, and it's not an if, right? If there is a tension between the two, and if the very... He says, if the various governmental entities follow the commission, they will subordinate religious liberty. And then he gives some examples, some that are not as common of some of this erosion of religious liberty and religious freedoms. In 2011, the Catholic Charities of Illinois was closed down rather than placing foster children with single people or homosexual couples as the state of Illinois had ordered them to do so. That's 2011. In 2014, the New England Association of Schools and Colleges threatened to rescind the accreditation of the Evangelical Christian School Gordon College for its policies on homosexuality and co-ed living. In 2015, a Mississippi high school marching band was forbidden on threat of a fine to perform a halftime show that featured a Christian hymn. 
just the band playing the music of the hymn. The dissenter goes on and he further warns, quote, it's already happening, but this commission, this report gives greater impetus and more fodder to those who would make religious freedom secondary to principles of non-discrimination. The slippery slope has turned into a cliff. You take the logical outcome of these things. We've seen the future already and it's coming very rapidly. There's a fairly significant effort to suppress or subordinate religious practices and religious beliefs in service of a broader agenda. End quote. Are we surprised or shocked? We should not be. We should not be if we read our Bibles, because if we read our Bibles, we realize from the Psalms to the prophets, to the epistles, to the apocalypse, we realize that persecution is normal. Freedom of religion is abnormal. Freedom of religion is a, is a blessing from God that is not to be expected. You become a Christian, you ought to expect to suffer. You read your Bibles, that message is as plain as day. These new Christians in Thessalonica began their Christian life expecting to suffer. And they did suffer. And Paul writes them six months later, the second letter, and they're still suffering. And it's even worse than before. The tensions are greater. The flames are higher. The pressure is building upon them. And so where does spiritual leadership begin? Where does Paul begin with this group of Christians who are into this pressure cooker of persecution. He doesn't begin with admonishment of chapter 3. He doesn't begin with the instructions of chapter 2. Spiritual leadership begins with encouragement and comfort for the people of God. So in chapter 1, the way we're going to handle it, we're just going to begin this morning, is we're going to ask and answer four Connected questions. Now, so here's the outline for chapter one. Four connected questions that will encourage us in light of present hostilities and coming persecutions. Four things you need to know when facing affliction for your faith. Let me give you all four now. We'll do the first one this morning. This is really your outline for chapter 1. First question. In the midst of persecution, can we still be thankful? The answer is yes, for the faith, love, and endurance of believers. Number two, what does our endurance reveal? Answer, for us, it it reveals that we're worthy of the kingdom of God. For unbelievers, it reveals that they're going to be judged at the return of Christ. Number three, what will this return of Christ set into motion? Answer, for unbelievers, it will set into motion a never-ending penalty. For us, it will set into motion honor and marveling at Jesus Christ. And then number four, how do we pray for each other until he comes back? Answer, verses 11 and 12. Okay? Four questions that are all connected because this whole passage, this whole chapter is one long sentence in Greek. Paul just couldn't find a stopping point. It just flows and goes. And so these questions must be connected. In the midst of persecution, can we still be thankful What does our endurance reveal? What will this return of Christ set in motion? And how do we pray for each other in the meantime? 
So today we just do the first one. In the midst of persecution, can we still be thankful? Look at verses 3 and 4. After his typical uh, beginning greetings to the church, he says in verse 3, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. Paul, take a breath. Okay. <laughs> Put down the pen. Yes, he says. Yes, we can be thankful. A resounding amen to finding some reason to praise and thank God. This is the same writer who, the last letter, said, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Paul is practicing what he preaches. Paul is writing to a persecuted, afflicted people, and he's saying, let's look up because there's something to be thankful for. And I'm going to tell you what it is. Your faith is growing, your love is growing, and your hope is enduring. All of these persecutions and all these afflictions, and for that we praise and thank God Almighty above. Times are hard, pressure is immense, but Paul says, look, your trust in God is growing because this persecution is taking away your props. This persecution is taking away things that you would otherwise lean on. Otherwise trust in. You've lost money. You've lost friendships. You've lost relationships. You've lost associations. And all of this is to wean you off of the things of this world so that you depend more and more on God who is the rock of your salvation. Thank God for this test, he says. Because your faith is greatly enlarged. He goes on and he says, your love for one another is growing. Your, your mutual care. He's not, he's not talking about now love for God. He's talking about the, the result of their faith is they care for each other in the foxhole. In the, in the pressure of the foxhole of this warfare, they are now looking out for each other's interest in ways they wouldn't have before. Thank God. And he says, we thank God for your ability at the end of the day just to put up with it. Just to endure it. See, affliction, listen, affliction reveals faith, love, and endurance like nothing else can or will. And so we find a reason to be thankful. We find a reason. I like to compare it to the heat of competition, sports competition. When you're in the heat of the moment, I do not believe that sports builds character. I believe that it reveals character. And some people are different people when they start competing. You really see what's on the inside. You really see what's in the heart in those moments. That is what affliction does for a believer. Paul is emphatic here. He says we ought. It's the idea of we owe gratitude to God. This is a debt. We ought to give thanks, he says. And he just piles it up. Then he says we ought always to give thanks. And he says, this is this fitting. This is appropriate. And then he gives the reasons for it. His point is this. They, they are experiencing a persecution prompted growth spurt. And the fertilizer is suffering. The sun and the, and the rain that is causing this growth spurt of these believers. Being reported back to Paul by the traveling missionaries. Is suffering. Think of it this way. 
It's like the great pressure of the earth that creates diamonds. It is the pressure of persecution that creates sparkling Christians. Glowing Christians. And so Paul is thankful to God. He's also thankful for their love, as we mentioned, in the midst of this persecution and affliction. He says, it is the love of each one for everyone. What's happening then is that sense of circling the wagons, right? What's happening is that sense of when, when a family is under attack, the, the family comes closer together. There is a common foe and there's a bonding that takes place then in the foxhole of pressure. If one person is under fire, we're all under fire, is what Paul is saying. And he thanks God that their love is being proven out by this persecution. And he's also thankful for their endurance, their hupomene, their ability to get up under a weight and just carry it and keep going forward until... God chooses to remove it. We learned back in 1 Thessalonians that uh, their endurance is produced by hope, right? By hope. So Paul is certainly alluding to that hope here when he brags about their endurance. He says in verse 4, we actually brag about you Thessalonians to the other churches. So he's in Corinth when he writes. He's dealing with the Corinthian church and I can just see him getting up and saying, let me tell you folks about your brothers and sisters back in Thessalonica. And I just want to brag on them for a minute because they're new Christians and they're, and they're doing so well in this furnace of affliction. And he tells them so here in verse 4. You know, you never know if you can run a marathon until when? Until you run a marathon. Endurance does not exist without something to endure. And so he's thanking God. We ought to always thank God for your perseverance and your faith in the midst of these afflictions which you bear up under so very well. Persecution then reveals our true hope. Persecution reveals what we have put our hope in for the future. In a government, in an election... And and a military power is our ultimate hope in any of these things? I sure hope not. We're imploding from within like the Roman Empire of old. Our greatest foe is inside the walls, not outside. Our greatest foe of America is the cancer of America's soul, if you will. And if persecution does come to us, if the Lord tarries, it will reveal for each one of us In those moments, it will reveal where our hope really is. Now, let's qualify all of this talk of persecution. We need to also recognize that persecution is bad. Persecution is sinful. And persecution is terrible. But, beloved, I would say to you, it is better to be persecuted than to be the persecutor. It is better to be the prey than the predator. It is better to be hated by men and God pleased with your response than to be loved by men and God rejecting. We are taught in the Bible when we are persecuted to flee when we can. To make preparations and to get out and get out of the way as we are able in a God-honoring way. 
But then when those options are all removed from us, we are to stand firm and we are to take it. We are to take it. That is what the Bible teaches. You run if you can, and then you take it. As Christ took it. As Stephen took it. As the five missionaries in South America took it. Because to live is Christ and to die is gain. Why would we not take it? I'm not talking about defending wife or children. That's a different issue. I'm not talking about a military that is supposed to suppress evil or a government that is supposed to suppress evil. That's a different issue. I'm talking about the individual's responsibility to turn the other cheek. Jesus Christ. To go the extra mile. Paul and the missionaries, they fled Thessalonica when persecution erupted and they got out of town. And we are to do that if we can. But if we can't. We are to endure. So our first question then to prepare us for present hostilities and coming persecution is anything to be thankful for in these terrible moments? The answer is a resounding yes. But why? Let's go a little bit deeper. Why all so thankful for their faith and their love and their endurance? Because, beloved, these are the most important things about us. Nothing else comes to this level of importance in our life. And that's why we can be thankful. You see, not our happiness, not our bank account, not our physical strength and health and comfort. Not if our kids are happy or our kids are successful in the eyes of the world or our kids are safe. The most important thing is not health Wealth, prosperity, and safety. The most important thing is faith, love, and hope that leads to endurance. The most important things are my dependence upon Christ for everything, my love for you as a brother or sister in Christ, and my hope that's in the future, the return of Christ, not anything of this world. That's what's most important about Chris McKnight. That's what's most important about you. So when Paul sees these things flourishing under the pressure of persecution, he gets on his knees and he thanks God. They're not safe. They're not comfortable. They're not in a relaxed state of mind. But their faith, love, and hope is growing off the charts. And Paul sees as God sees. He has the eyes of God when things like this happen. He sees what's most important. Beloved, in the fires of hostility... Our faith, love, and endurance by the grace of God will come forth as gold. And those fires will create a beautiful, beautiful Christian. And so, we join Paul. We ought always to give thanks to God for you suffering. In Christianity Today, most recent edition... There's an article titled, Are U.S. Christians Really Persecuted? The author is a woman by the name of uh, initials K.A. Ellis. She writes and thinks often and deeply about these kinds of things. And she questions in this article whether American Christians should say that we are under persecution. She says that when she is discussing anti-Christian hostility in America, that she avoids the P word, And she doesn't ever make comparisons of Americans and their suffering to other parts of the world. 
And we can appreciate that, can't we? But we can understand where she's coming from on that. But then she goes on in the article to quote this Middle Eastern house church leader and his perspective on American persecution. This is interesting. He says, persecution is easier to understand when it's physical. Torture, death, imprisonment. American persecution is like an advanced stage of cancer. It eats away at you, yet you cannot feel it. This is the worst kind of persecution. Ellis goes on, she says uh, she has three views of religious hostility in America. She has what she calls the hostility deniers. The hostility deniers. And they see the church as the problem. They cannot distinguish between exploitive religion, when religion does go bad, and it has and it does, and what is a faithful Christian who loves God and loves his neighbor. They can't make any distinction on that. They just put us all in one big group, these hostility deniers. They say there is no hostility. They look at American culture and they say there's no problem at all. In fact, you Christians are getting exactly what you deserve. That's the hostility deniers. She goes on, second category, she calls the hostility seekers. Hostility seekers, they see persecution as a mark of a true Christian, as a mark of true Christianity. They almost talk and write as if persecution has saving power, as if we're saved by it instead of the grace of God. He says they exaggerate threats in order to keep the persecution industry alive. That's pretty perceptive because we have all seen exaggerated threats. We have all seen things that have come and gone and the sky is falling, the sky is falling, and oh, lo and behold, it didn't fall, right? And so I think that's a good word of warning there. Finally, the third category where we all want to be is hostility realist. A hostility realist understands that anything is possible. Anything. She says, rarely does a nation move from freedom to oppression overnight. She cites several examples herself of this eroding freedoms, and then she concludes with what I will conclude with this statement. I believe we will continue to see more constrictions for people of faith. This is not a cause for despair. We may never experience what the global church faces, but it teaches us that the culture cannot despise us more than we can love its people. While religious liberty is worth Protecting, it is not our ultimate goal. Our true goal is perseverance and faithfulness. Amen. Amen. Father, may it be that we are prepared for hostilities that might increase. That those who are experiencing some form of hostility even now from employer or child or parent or relative would have this perseverance and have this faithfulness, would have this encouragement that this letter is seeking to give us here in chapter 1. Father, we pray for the comfort this morning of that person who might be with us, who has been unfairly treated, unjustly accused or afflicted in any way. May they see the hand of God in this. May they See the sovereignty of God over their suffering. May they see that through this you will create diamonds 
Through this, you'll bring forth gold that shines for you. As the song we sang earlier, Lord, said, there is pain in the offering. We ask for endurance and a growing love and a stronger faith. In Christ's name we pray, amen.